weeks. <laughs> How would your kids describe your Thanksgiving meal? <laughs> Happy Sunday of Thanksgiving week. Did you have a good one? How many had turkey? Did you have some good turkey? It's really, really good. Hey, so what if we flipped it and have one day set aside for grumbling and complaining? Do you think we would have enough to fill the day? Doug, we don't need to set aside a day for grumbling and complaining because we do it every day. It's an American ritual, right? Grumbling, complaining. It's said that we have thousands of thoughts per day, every day. And research has demonstrated that up to 60 to 70% of those are negative. When you're not focused on doing something, you're just thinking, typically it's negative. Complaining, can't believe this happened to me. Why didn't this work out? I deserve better. Blaming somebody else. Uh, accusations. All kinds of things come under the complaining umbrella. And it's pretty miserable, isn't it? Do you know anyone who's got kind of a grunchy, grumpy attitude? You really don't want to be around those people very much, do you? No. What, what do people complain most about? What do you think? Over here. What? Politics. What else? Work. Other people. I mean, wouldn't life be wonderful? What? He said children. Grown children. <laughs> That's what he meant to say. Taxes, weather, traffic. Have we in the valley had opportunity to complain about traffic in the last couple of months? And we got good at it. Did you see the, the online social media place where people went to complain. Why do people complain? I mean, think about it for a moment. We all do it. It's, it's almost like a bad habit, but why do people complain? Because things aren't going my way. Things are happening I don't want to happen. Things don't happen that I do want to happen because the government's doing this and that affects me that way, I would say that maybe people complain the why is because those who complain have a self-centered perspective. All about me. I mean the weather. It should conform to my desires. The government should operate. International politics and economy should operate according to what would benefit moi. Self-centered perspective will guarantee complaint. Now, only one in five Americans believe that the opposite of complaining, that gratitude is a preferable attitude and emotion. Now, what attitudes are we Americans uh, lobbying for? What else would we be wanting? I mean, ambition, probably. You know, getting things to go our way, that kind of thing. Um, there's a whole realm under the uh, umbrella of grumbling, complaining, and griping. 
um, and it moves on into often blaming others and resentment and bitterness. It, it's, it's a cauldron there. In fact, scientists in the last 20, 30 years, since they're able to not only map brain imagery of MRIs and stuff, but they're able to detect brain chemicals and the way they operate, have been able to determine the effect of complaining on your brain. Did you know that complaining physically and literally affects your brain structure and the rest of your whole body operation? Complaining will raise your cortisol levels. It's called the stress hormone. Now sometimes, I mean, if you see a bear in the woods, you, you get that fight or flight thing, mostly flight, and the stress hormones go up. And, and, and then when the bear's not chasing you anymore, they go down. But a person who has a bent toward complaining, things aren't going my way. I, it's like the world doesn't work the way I want it to work. The cortisol levels shoot high. And it affects, in fact, they say complaining a half a day, half an hour a day could kill you because it will affect your body, affect your blood vessels, the uh, chemical makeup of your, uh, what's going on in your brain so that it can open you up for high blood pressure, um, diabetes, heart attack, stroke. It's not good for you. Plus, what it does also, and by the way, you guys can Google this stuff. I'm not a, a brain surgeon, by the way, just to clear things up. But you can Google this stuff, and you can talk words like a hippocampus. Complaining um, actually shaves off parts of the hippocampus. It's responsible for problem-solving and rational thought. Now, if you're complaining about stuff, I mean, you're probably not being too rational to start with. Probably not solving your problems. And the more you complain, the least able you are to solve your problems or to think rationally. It just doesn't make any sense. But it feels so good, doesn't it? Doesn't it just to have a session to vent? Don't we think that venting helps? Actually, it triples or quadruples the stress that you're feeling. What does um, complaining do to relationships? Do you like to be with somebody who's criticizing you a lot? Or complaining to you about you? Or life in general? Or their thing? It's been, again, when, when you look this stuff up, it's been proven that if you are around complaining people, <clears throat> it's like being around secondhand smoke all the time. And you can because of what we call an emphatic response can begin to buy into the negativity of the mood. Now, I'm not advocating divorce, but all that you have an opportunity, stay away from complaining and grumbling people. In fact, the Bible tells us not to complain. And the way it does, in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 14. Now the Bible often is commanding us to do something about 
feelings. Rejoice always. In other words, be happy. Are you kidding me? Have you ever tried to tell somebody to be happy, to rejoice, to uh, have a certain feeling? How do you tell people how to feel? Well, we'll get into that because it makes a lot of sense. In Philippians 2.14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. The word arguing there is translated in other uh, versions as complaining. Do everything without grumbling or complaining so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> they didn't know nothing about warped and crooked generations, did they? I mean, we are setting new records daily for warped and crooked generations. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Did you hear that, Christian? All you got to do is just stop grumbling and complaining, and you'll shine like a star. I mean, think about your friends. Think about workmates. Think about people where you go to school or whatever. If you just stop complaining, then you're going to shine like the stars. Stop grumbling and stop complaining. So what do we do? If we're not going to grumble and complain, what's the prescription for what we do to protect ourselves from the negative brain-body relational effects and fallout of grumbling? How are we going to stop? What are we going to do? Well, again, fortunately, the Bible helps us out. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. And by the way, when Paul wrote, uh, Do Everything Without Grumbling and Complaining, uh, he wasn't writing it to an ideal situation. He wrote it to the people who lived in Philippi, which was a, a Greek uh, city. And at that city, he was flogged and thrown in jail. And they watched him. And then they began to be, the Christians there began to be persecuted. So when he, when he says do all things without grumbling and complaining, he's not talking about people living in an ideal situation. They are living in a difficult situation. So 1 Thessalonians, just not too far from Philippi, he writes to them, rejoice always. There it is. Rejoice always. Now, my parents didn't tell me to be happy, but they often told me to stop crying. If you don't stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. Now, I thought I had plenty of good reason to be crying at the time, and I didn't need for them to supply a physical reason for me to be crying. But the Bible tells us to rejoice, to be happy. And again, this was in a, a town where they had experienced persecution. Pray continually. Underline this in your Bible if you have it out. Give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Have you ever said, if I just knew God's will, I would do it in a heartbeat. I just wished I knew the will of God. Ta-da! You learned it this morning. Give thanks in all circumstances circumstances and when something goes wrong something spills in your kitchen or on the carpet how do you react to that <clears throat> how do you change that immediate anger perhaps reaction to something that is more pleasant that's something gracious well 
We're going to get into that in just a moment. How can we be grateful? Now, thanksgiving, gratitude, gratefulness. What is gratitude? Why are people grateful? Now, this is not a theological question. This is very simple. Why, why are you grateful when you're grateful? Because what? Something good has happened to you. Or you avoided something disastrous, right? <clears throat> we are typically grateful circumstantially for things that we have received. We're not so grateful for things we've earned. We are grateful for things that are given to us. I mean, how many parents have tried to teach their kids what to say when someone gives them something? What do you say to the little cherub? What do you think? Say, thank you. Exactly. How many times does it take for your child to get the idea to say thank you when someone gives them something? We always taught our kids when they got something from someone to say, well, that's the least you could do. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> I'm just kidding. We were just like you. Because parents, <clears throat> parents value that attitude of gratefulness, and they want to see that engendered in their children gratefulness we give thanks because we've received something it's like when we get a something we did not um, expect we're thankful now what negates gratefulness a sense of entitlement are we entitled in america apparently you are entitled and deserve the burger that you describe when you go to the fast food joint. How many times when you watch commercials, if you watch commercials, do they use the words, you deserve this 0% financing, whatever it may be. You deserve. It's your right. Entitlement negates thanksgiving. <clears throat> expectations. How many of you have expectations for your mate that your mate does not meet? Expectations for the mate? The mate's current operation. What is that gap? That gap is a, well, why didn't you? That is a criticism gap. What if let me say this right. Not lowered your expectations. <laughs> but what if you did away with the expectations and received and accepted and appreciated what your mate does for you? It's been said that in a marriage situation, if there are five negative things said, there has to be at least one positive thing said. You get much beyond that ratio and the marriage is not going to be doing well. So how many of you make sure that after you've called out the faults of your mate at least five times, you say, oh, but there is one thing I really like about you. It, it, it's, it's ridiculous when we think about how we often, how we can motivate our loved ones to different behavior by calling out their wrong behavior. 
It's called complaining. It doesn't work. I mean, my mother was a genius with this stuff. She told me, she said, You're, you'll never amount to anything. <laughs> and, and, you know, she would, she would point out, you could, you, could, you could lay down and go to sleep next to work. She thought pointing out the negative would bring out the positive. Complaining doesn't work. But if you will praise your mate for more than they presently are, you'll be amazed that they may try to live up to your praise and gratitude rather than living down to the level of your criticism. You could try it. It might work. I'm not letting him off that easy. I'm not. <laughs> okay, let's go on. So, benefits <clears throat> of gratitude are more dramatic in the brain than the negative, benefit, negative effects of complaining. I'm, I'm, I'm not making this stuff up, and uh, you can go online and check it out. Have you ever heard of dopamine? <clears throat> Dopamine is a neurotransmitter. It's a neuron in your brain. There's billions of them. And dopamine makes connections between dendrites and other dendrites. And when it makes connections, for example, negatively, if you complain and habitually complain, what you do is those neurons begin to uh, forge a bridge so that negative thoughts become your go-to. And a negative thought that otherwise might just float through your mind, because your mind has built these bridges of negativity, they hook onto it. In other words, you can train your brain to complain. Or you can train it to be grateful. It's your brain, right? Nobody can control what you think other than you, and you're thinking, well, I'm not sure I do a good job of that. Well, that may be where we need to talk this morning. Dopamine... <coughs> You may have heard um, dopamine is artificially stimulated by cocaine and methamphetamines. Now, apparently, that's something that people will die for, sell their children for, to have another hit of that artificially stimulated dopamine. Now, dopamine, uh, naturally, and the way God designed it, it goes to our reward center makes us feel good and makes us feel so good we want to do that again. I want to do another experience like that one so I feel good again. Now, negatively with drugs and stuff, it can be addiction. But positively, the way God intended it to work, the brain chemicals, when you... Okay, here's the deal. <clears throat> I want you to think about someone you're grateful for or to. You got it? Just anyone. Someone you're grateful for anything. Okay, now you've got the thought, and that's where it starts. I want you to, in your mind, see yourself expressing gratitude to that person. How many of you did it face-to-face? -face? How many of you called? How many of you emailed or text? Whatever, when you have the thought of gratitude... I appreciate what that person did for me. And when you express that, immediately, because of brain chemicals, your happiness factor goes up 10%. And depressive aspects of mood go down 35. 
Is that amazing or what? In fact, gratitude is one of the highest factors to correlate with happiness that you have control over. If you, if studies have shown this, uh, control groups write down five things a day they're grateful for. At the end of two weeks, compared to other control groups, their happiness is off the charts. Why is that? I mean, how can gratitude stimulate happiness? Well, I mean, we know the brain chemistry, right? But what makes it feel so good to be grateful and to say, thank you? Now, some, one reason why we, why we uh, deny that within ourselves is because expressing gratitude can make us feel um, vulnerable or beholden to someone because they've given me something I did not reciprocate. It's not a transaction. That's one reason why we're careful sometimes not to express gratitude. But if you go against all of that and you identify something or someone to be grateful for, and you have the thought, you formulate the thought, right there, you're beginning. It's like you are giving yourself a shot of dopamine, a feel-good reward chemical. Regardless of your present state, and I'm not uh, saying that you know, there are certain medications that are very important for people with chemical imbalance, but typically in the general population, you can boost the dopamine feel-good reward by thinking about and expressing gratitude and lower cortisol levels and contribute to your overall general well-being. I know this is, this is a... I didn't know this stuff until I began looking it all up. Um, also, when you express gratitude... It activates, or right, listen to this, hypothalamus. Did you know you have one of those? You may not have known, but it is very active <clears throat> because the hypothalamus regulates a lot of your bodily functions. So when you are grateful, your hypothalamus is activated and it begins to be more effective in regulating all of your bodily functions. In fact, they have demonstrated that people who are in this gratitude study sleep better. Actually sleep better. Uh, well, let me just read you. Seven scientifically proven benefits of gratitude. It was online. It's got to be true, right? <coughs> you want to check it out. Gratitude opens the door to more relationships. People gravitate to those who are appreciative and who are grateful. Gratitude improves physical health. Now, we've seen how that when you negate the effects of grumbling and complaining and elevate the good chemicals and depress the others, that you are going to be physically healthy. It improves psychological health and reduces a multitude of toxic emotions, like we talked about a moment ago. Gratitude enhances empathy and reduces aggression. We're, we're going to hope the Broncos do not 
get this before the game today, right? We don't want them reducing aggression. All right, grateful people sleep better. Gratitude improves self-esteem. And gratitude increases mental strength. They have done studies that show that gratitude is a contributor to resilience for people who have been in traumatic experiences. It increases mental strength, focus, and attention. All right, so, so think about it now just on the basis. Physiologically, relationally, do you choose to complain or you choose thanksgiving? There you go. I mean, I mean, seriously, is it not your choice? <clears throat> when you go out in the parking lot after the service and there's a new ding on your car, you have a choice. When you're trying to leave the parking lot and somebody pulls in front of you, I mean, you're leaving from church, right? But you have a choice. When you're in traffic anywhere and it doesn't go the way you want it to go, you have a choice of what you think. No one can make you think the way you think. Only you. And so if you can do that, what can you do about it? The benefits of gratefulness are astounding. Physiologically, relationally, psychologically, every way. How can we choose to be grateful? Up till about 30, 40 years ago, most of psychology was pathological. In other words, they were trying to figure out why people are so weird and bad and mean, destructive. But about 30 years ago, <coughs> psychologists began to study happiness and well-being. It may occur to you, well, it's about time. Let's discover what happy people do to be happy and do that, rather than discover the reasons for um, being sociopaths. As they began to uh, study um, happiness, they began, uh, neuroscience was coming along at the same time, and they began to be able to look at brain health and brain activity and brain function. And they began to understand that we have a continual flow of thoughts. Right now, you may be following me in your thoughts, or you may be thinking about Something else. There's a continual flow of thoughts, 1,500 um, words per minute if you were to write it out. And you can only talk like it. Two, I'm only talking 200 words per minute, and you're thinking way more than that. So hopefully you're devoting those others to understanding uh, and uh, pr what, what's going on. So when you think, you can only have and hold one conscious thought at a time in your mind. In other words, if I were to ask you to count backwards from 100 and then somewhere along the way ask you to say your name, you've got to do one or the other. You can't do both. You can only have one conscious thought in your mind at a time. And you can control one thought, right? I mean, even some of you, I mean, you can control one thought at a time. I know it seems like a thundering herd. <clears throat> It seems like you're being overwhelmed, like they're driving trucks down your freeway of negative thoughts, right? You know why? Because those neurons have built bridges and allowed negative thoughts to have a highway into your mind. It's time to begin deconstructing those. And constructing 
the pathways that you prefer, the pathways that are godly. And you do it one thought at a time. Cognitive behavioral therapy has developed over the last 30 years and is often proven to be as effective or more effective than medication in psychological situations. Cognitive behavioral therapy, which means what you think affects how you feel, stimulates what you do and what you say. So you start with the cognitive, you start with the thought. And you control that one thought, and as you control that one thought, well, they've also <clears throat> given a terminology to that flow of thoughts through our mind, thousands a day. They call it ANTS, A-N-T-S, automatic negative thinking. Because most of the automatic thinking that comes through our minds is negative. A lot of it complaining. If you had a printout of your thoughts over the last six hours, and it was analyzed according to content, what would it be? How much negative, how much positive? Because most of the positive you have to do on purpose, right? A negative just happens. It's almost like automatic. But the positive, you have to stop. <clears throat> In other words, a thought begins coming through your mind. I can't believe what they're doing. And you're, stop. I refuse that, and I thank God for this person in my life. You can't just reject the thought. You can't just not think about the pink elephant. You've got to have a substitute thought. And the th substitute thought is a godly thought. And the way you do that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Okay, now, remember the concept. You can only have one conscious thought at a time. You can analyze and you can identify the content <clears throat> of one thought at a time. And then you can choose to continue to let that thought spiral through your mind, or you can reject it and replace it with something else. You guys got that? Everybody got that? Not many people really believe me when I tell them you can control your thoughts because they feel overwhelmed by negative thoughts. Well, yeah. It's a battle, and I tell people it takes about 10 days to turn the tide. In other words, that, that freeway that those negative thoughts have been coming in on have been doing it for a while, right? Negative thoughts of complaint or grumbling or self-accusation, whatever it may be. And so the first time you stand up to stop one of those thoughts, what's going to happen? You get run over. You get flattened because they're used to coming in. They're like gorillas. They just come in and throw you around. Second time. It, it takes, of the first hundred times that you attempt to stop your negative thoughts of complaining, you may stop four or five. That's how strong and entrenched the negative thoughts are. Do you understand that? I'm telling you the truth. And so it is a, it is a battle. The battle is between your ears. And the next hundred, you may stop one more. And it will take at least a week and a little bit more for the tide to turn and you begin to take chips of asphalt out of a highway that's been constructed into your mind of negative thoughts. 
And you have also begun to construct pathways, highways of positive thoughts, of thankfulness, of gratefulness. So you dismantle one, the negative, and you build the other, the positive. Does that make sense? And you, you do it by consciously identifying the content of thoughts and either restricting it or accepting it. Now the problem is, is that uh, the way it is now, your negative thoughts already have an emotional code with them. Overwhelming. It seems like when the first negative thought hits, it's like you've already had it a hundred times. That's because it's so um, repetitive. So even though it feels like you're standing against all the emotions within you to stop the negative thought, you stop it in the... Well, let me just read to you here. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. All right, now we're going to get into supernatural gratitude. Natural gratitude is great. And if you can just do that, you'll be, you'll be well off. But nat, supernatural gratitude, we have divine power to demolish strongholds, to demolish those freeways. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. I can just envision, I think in cartoons sometimes, I can just envision this negative thought being uh, grabbed, you know, by my mental policeman and being taken off to Christ, kicking and screaming and threatening all the way. And then another one pops up. We've got to do it all over again. It happens so quickly. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Do you have any problem with your knowledge of God? How's your theology? Do you have any problem with uh, thoughts coming in that are counter to your theology, your beliefs about God? What are your beliefs about God? Now, this is incredible. <clears throat> I know I've strained your credibility already, your credulity, by giving you all this stuff about brain chemicals and operation, physiological, relational. But this is going to blow your mind. Um, surveys have been taken and demonstrated that Americans have basically four ideas or beliefs about what kind of God there is. <clears throat> and almost every American fits into one or the other. Four different kinds of God that we believe in. Now, in America, we all say we believe in God, except maybe five or six percent. But when we say we believe in God, if you go deeper, we believe in four different kinds of gods. Of, there's only one God, but we can have distorted beliefs, we can have beliefs that aren't true, or you can have beliefs that, that correlate with reality. Now, the number one <coughs> idea of God that Americans have in their mind, 31% of Americans believe in an authoritative authoritarian God. Now, if you had an authoritarian parent, you know what that means. You do what I say. You don't talk back. Authoritarian, authoritative, but engaged view of God. So number one, 31%, authoritative. Can you spell that? Do you believe... 
I'm not going to ask you right now, but I do want you to reflect on this uh, and then in your growth groups have a chance to talk about this. Is this the kind of God I believe in? That he's sitting up there and he wants me to do things exactly right. And if I don't, he's going to set things in motion and bring about things in my life that don't work out. And so I may stay on the straight and narrow, but it's because I do not want to cross that God. The second kind of God we believe in, <clears throat> they, term it, they term it benevolent, but I would put kind and loving. This is more the biblical picture of who God is. He's the creator, he's righteous, but he loves me. He's forgiven me in Jesus Christ. So, 24%, about a quarter of Americans have a view of God that correlates with who God has revealed himself to be in the Bible. The third viewpoint of God, idea of God, is a critical yet distant God. Now, this, God's, this God doesn't like what I'm doing, but he's saving the punishment for the afterlife, and he's going to let me and whoever deserves it have it. A critical God. And that's about 16%. And the last category of the God that people believe in is a distant God. 24%. Okay, there are four. Authoritarian God, a kind, loving God, a critical God, an absent or distant God. Does it make any difference what you believe about God? Now, most of you can tell me what you should believe about God. If most of you were asked what you believe about God, you would give characteristics that would conform to the second one, the kind, loving God, right? But what does your lifestyle reveal about the kind of God you believe in? What do your thoughts reveal about the kind of God you... Do you believe that there is a loving God who cares for you? Do your thoughts reveal that? Or do your thoughts reveal that you are upset because things don't go your way and you... Well, ultimately, who's responsible if things don't go your way? This, um, the God-shaped brain, how changing your view of God transforms your life. Listen to what this guy says. He's an MD, board-certified Christian psychiatrist. Does it matter what God concept we hold? Recent brain research has documented all forms of, of meditation are corresponding with positive brain changes. The greatest improvements occur when patients meditate specifically on a God of love associated with growth in the frontal cortex, right behind your forehead where you reason and make judgments and experience God-like love and subsequently increase capacity for empathy, sympathy, compassion, and generosity to others. He's saying that our brains were created in the image of a God who is loving and kind. Who created the earth. Who loved us so much he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. To forgive us of our sins. So we could be accepted freely and receive his grace. He's saying that our brains physiologically were created to respond 
and then to correlate health through our body when we line up with the God who really is the God there is, and that works into our lives, bodies, and relationships in every way in a beneficial way. Is that astounding or what? If a person, <clears throat> if a person has an idea of God, whether or not they say they would believe it, that God is authoritarian or distant or critical, then that person will find themselves dealing with different levels of fear, worry, and anxiety. I mean, you got to. If you don't believe God's on your side, if you don't believe he cares for you, you've got to have a flow in your brain, chemicals that indicate fear, worry, anxiety, anger, resentment, grumbling, complaining, and so on and so on. It matters, it matters that your concept of God, experienced concept of God, line up with the way God's described himself in the Bible. And if it's out of whack, you're vulnerable to all kinds of things going wrong in your brain, your body, your life, and your relationships. Paul didn't know all of that scientifically when he wrote this stuff. Isn't it incredible how scientific research has substantiated the teachings of the Bible? So that when you rejoice and you give thanks in all things, that you are going to have a better brain, and a better day, and a better family, and better relationships. Think about that. All right, so when you leave here, are you going to think about what you think? And when you notice a toxic thought coming in, are you going to put the stops, drag it out, replace it with a Thank you, God, that Jesus died for me. You established my value and worth eternally. And I am going to bask in your love and care for me. Yeah, my tire just went flat and I'm out of gas. But God, you love me. And that's going to be the dominant feeling that I allow myself to have. I'll change the tire. I'll get gas. I'll do whatever. But in the meantime and along the way, I will do so with a grateful, thankful heart because you are good. God is good, and he's in a good mood. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, <clears throat> for the verification. Um, you gave us minds to think with, and we have used those minds to research stuff uh, as best we can in this universe and within our minds. And we are discovering that the truths of your word are established uh, physiologically within us. That your ways are right and good and beneficial. It's not just a religious thing that you tell us things we need to do. It's the way we're made and you just want us to operate according to design. And thank you for forgiving us when we don't live up to that and giving us the grace we need. And thank you so much for the cup that tells us Jesus spilt his blood on the cross for us. And for the bread that demonstrates his body that was broken for us. And as we, fathers, we partake these things today. May we come to this table and take these things with a heart of thankfulness. And when a thought tries to intrude that's disruptive, we just shove it out. 
get right back to thanking you for what you've done for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.